Years after the Civil War ended, Confederate P.G.T. Beauregard conjectured that the Battle of First Manassas and all the other battles afterward were based on the, quote, gradual result of the operation of many forces, both opposing design and actual collision, modified more or less by the falls of chance, end quote. He thus rejected the idea of any supernatural intervention as a valid explanation for the outcome of any one battle. Ellen White, however, claimed to have seen an angel intervene in First Manassas and dramatically influence its outcome. Welcome to the Ellen White Podcast. Here is your host, Dr. Judd Lake. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Ellen White Podcast. I'm continuing my series on the Civil War. The last episode, we discussed the Battle of Manassas and the angel that came down and intervened in that battle. An amazing event of God's intervention in the battle of the battles of the Civil War. And that vision was significant because uh, based on what happened with the angel, she describes the rest of the battles. She gives a, a remarkable forecast of the pattern of the battles. So I'm entitling this episode, A Forecast of the Battles. So after describing the angel on the battlefield, she gave a supernatural explanation of the vision. And this is from Testimonies, Volume 1, page 267. Contextually, this is right after her discussion of the angel on the battlefield. Then it was explained that God had this nation in his own hand and would not suffer victories to be gained faster than he ordained, and would permit no more losses to the northern men than in his wisdom he saw fit to punish them for their sins. End quote. This explanation set forth a theological interpretation of the war, a nation in God's hands, and then announced divine intervention in the battles. While all wars involve battle patterns of victories and losses, the significance of this statement is its emphasis on the nature of God's involvement in this particular war. In one broad sweep, White forecasts the pattern of Union victories and losses throughout the entire course of the forthcoming conflict and attributed it to God's punitive action. As she began the account of this vision, White set forth her view very clearly. Quote, God is punishing this nation for the high crime of slavery, end quote. Her indictment included both sides in the war. He will punish the South for the sin of slavery, she wrote, and the North for so long suffering its overreaching and overbearing influence. Yet he has the destiny of this nation in his hands. End quote. In the backdrop of the indictment, White set forth her vision of the Battle of First Manassas, in which she saw an angel descend and wave his hand backward causing instant confusion in the advancing northern troops and a precipitate retreat. Immediately following the angel in the vision, she wrote the explanation given her as quoted above and then stated, And had the northern army at this time pushed the battle still further in their fainting, exhausted condition, the far greater struggle and destruction which awaited them would have caused great triumph in the south. God would not permit this and send his angel to interfere. End quote. This angelic intervention in the first major battle of the Civil War was the context in which Ellen White understood how God would involve himself in the entire war. The angel on the battlefield was, therefore, an illustration of how God had this nation in his own hand and would guide the ultimate outcome, a northern victory. This victory would not come quickly and easy, or easily, however, for God would not suffer or allow victories to be gained faster than he ordained, as she put it, and would permit no more losses to the northern men than in his wisdom he saw fit. This forecast, first published approximately a month after the first Battle of Bull Run, depicted a seesaw pattern of Union victories and losses in the forthcoming war. 
That is, there would be up periods of victories and down periods of losses in the Union battles. The up periods would involve those victories that came only when God ordained them, as she put it, and the down periods would involve only those losses as, in his wisdom, he saw fit. This up-down pattern of the battles would be directly related to God's punishment of the North for com compromising with the South and the sin of slavery. This prediction should not be viewed in isolation from White's other statements about the war, particularly the following statement, quote, When our nation observes the fast which God has chosen, then he will accept their prayers as far as the war is concerned. This fast to which she pointed was the emancipation of the slaves. Thus, the nature of this up-and-down pattern of the Union battles would be di directly influenced by the progress of emancipation. The implication of these statements when taken together is that God, or I should say, is that once God's purpose of punishment ran its course and emancipation of the slaves became a reality, the pattern of the battle outcomes would be decidedly in favor of the Union. Because this brief but sweeping vision gave only the big picture without much detail, and White herself never referenced this statement in relation to the progress of the war, the interpreter is left to study the battles and determine where, or whether, the victory-loss pattern she described can be found in the course of the war. Now, This episode will therefore survey the rising and falling fortunes of the Union battles in relation to the story of emancipation. In a sense, I will tell the story of the war, but with the theological perspective of White's prophecy. Only the battles of significance are discussed. I, I don't have time to get into all of the details, um, the, the microcosm of the battles. Uh, in my own analysis, I found that this pattern is consistent. But for purposes of keeping this podcast at a decent uh, length and um, time, I'm going to just cover the major battle patterns, which reflect, as I found, in many of the details. It should be noted that this is my own interpretation of the Civil War battles from the perspective of Ellen White's forecast. There are, of course, other ways of interpreting the events of the Civil War, each with its own merit. James McPherson, well-known Civil War historian, the eminent Civil War historian in his classic book, Battle Cry of Freedom, he describes the idea of contingency, that events in the war, battles and losses, decisions that generals made, they were contingent on prior events. And I can certainly respect that. Uh, I certainly respect uh, McPherson's writings on the Civil War and have used them a lot in my own research and found them to be most helpful. And I, and I resonate with that statement. But I'm coming at it more from a supernatural perspective. That is, this interpretation consists of a proposal where one could apply White's theological prognostication to the battles and political events of the war and therefore suggest only possibilities. We can't be dogmatic. I'm not trying to be dogmatic here and say, this is how it happened because this was a fulfillment of Ellen White's prophecy. I, that's not something I want to push too far. But on the other hand, as a believer in Ellen White's prophetic gift, uh, I, I see an, a striking occurrence in the paddle, uh, patterns of the battles in the Civil War. They reflect her forecast. So as a believer, of course, I'm going to interpret it from that perspective. But the point is, this is an interpretation of the battles of the Civil War from a supernatural perspective, the one represented in Ellen White, a primary source, a person who was one of the many that experienced the war at that time. Now, there is an, an inevitable subjective element in this way of interpreting the Civil War. Uh, I can't deny that. The history of the war is available for all to study, however, and can compare with Ellen White's visions, each one for themselves. Her vision first published in August of 1861. So, with that background said, let's get into the patterns of the war. Now, in my book, A Nation in God's Hands, I have three 
big chapters that cover all of the major battles of the Civil War in detail. And I share in that book a lot of the drama of the Civil War. There's a lot about Lincoln and his experience. Of course, I'm not going to do all of that here. That's the details covered in those chapters if you want to to read that and get into more detail. Now I'm just going to summarize the the major patterns of the war, uh, of the battles, from this perspective. So let's begin then with the early battles, the beginning battles of, of the war. There is a pattern that, that I see in the Union battles. So I'm going to look at the, the pattern of the battles year by year. So we're going to start with the battles in 1861. First Bull Run was the first major battle. There were some skirmishes prior to that, but in terms of a major battle, that was First Bull Run, fought in July 21. We already looked at that last class, or last, did you hear that? I almost said last class period, as if I'm teaching a class. Uh, I looked at that in the last episode. Right now, I've just begun began a new semester, and I'm in that mode of last class period, next class period, so sorry about that. But First Bull Run... July 21, it was a defeat. Remember, they were routed, the Union soldiers, and from Ellen White's perspective, it was due to the intervention of the angel. It was a defeat for the Union, a, a devastating defeat. Then you had Wilson's Creek on August 10. That was also a defeat. So the Civil War did not get off to a good start for the Union. Ball's Bluff, October 21, another defeat. And at this point, keep in mind that in relationship to emancipation, Lincoln's goal was to preserve the Union and not end slavery. And so you had no real sense of, of emancipation uh, at work during this time. So you find this series of defeats, one after the other. And in the fall of 1861, George B. McClellan, the general that everybody believed was going to save the day. He builds up a massive Union army during the fall. He trains them well, but as we will see, he sat with them for a long time before he actually moved. Early in 1862, it's Grant, Ulysses Grant, who was taking action. He was not the major commanding general yet. He was a minor commander here, but he was leading his troops. And so you have the Battle of Fort Henry and the Battle of Fort Donelson. February 6 and February 11, 16, respectively. Both of these were victories. So you have an up pattern here at the beginning of 1862, a, certainly a breath of fresh air after all the losses in 61 for the Union. Then you have the Battle of Pea Ridge in March, March 6 and 7. That was another victory. And then you had the Battle of Shiloh, April 6 and 7 in western Tennessee, a bloody, bloody battle to both sides, but it was a, a win for the Union as well. So they were off to a better start, feeling better. You had a series of significant naval successes in the upper Mississippi as well. So one victory after another. Until the summer, you had a number of defeats. One of the most significant was the Seven Days Battle, where George McClellan battled with Robert E. Lee back and forth. And eventually, McClellan retreated, and Lee saved the capital of the Confederacy. So it was a very, very uh, interesting situation. Lee saved Richmond. That had uh, was the capital of the Confederacy at the time, and, and McClellan did not take it. So that was a significant defeat for the Union troops. As the summer progressed, later in the summer, you had the Battle of Second Manassas. A year later, after First Manassas, or First Bull Run, you have Second Manassas, or Second Bull Run. This was a defeat, a significant, stunning defeat uh, of the Union by the Confederacy. And that set things in motion for what would happen during September. September 1862 was a major turning point in the American Civil War. After the Union summer losses at the Seven Days and Second Manassas battles, it was a real possibility that the Confederate States of America might win their independence. Several factors, for example, were evident by the end of August 1862. The British government was preparing to give the Confederacy diplomatic recognition, and that would have been devastating for the Union. 
Confederate armies launched a major offensive into Maryland, Kentucky, and western Tennessee, and the northern armies and citizens were demoralized. Lincoln, in fact, had shelled his Emancipation Proclamation to wait for a victory that might never come. He had proposed an early draft in that summer to his cabinet, and he shelled it. He was told, wait for a victory. Well, a victory did not seem to be coming at all, so he had shelled his Emancipation Proclamation. In the meantime, with the maneuvers of the troops, Lee went to Frederick, Maryland, and then took his armies away, and then McClellan eventually marched into Frederick, Maryland, after Lee had gone, and an incredible event happened. One of Lee's commanders carelessly left Special Order 191 by a fire, a campfire, and one of McClellan's commanders plopped down to relax, and he found this strange paper that was folding several cigars. And he opened it up, and he read it, and to his amazement, he saw key generals in the Confederate Army and what they were supposed to do. And of course, they sent this up to the lines and authenticated it, and it was genuine. It was Lee's strategy, and it was put in George McClellan's hands. And he stated, I've got the plans to defeat Bobby Lee. Well, Bruce Catton, great Civil War historian, he explained the situation quite effectively. He said, The fog of war, which always limits the vision of an army commander, suddenly dissolved and everything became clear. McClellan knew as much about Lee's plans as if he had personally attended Lee's last staff conference. The game was being handed to him on a silver platter. McClellan had become the beneficiary of the greatest security leak in American military history. According to Catton, Lee's army of invasion had split into pieces like an exploding shell, and the Army of the Potomac, massed in and near Frederick, Maryland, was ideally situated to exploit the situation. No Civil War general was ever given so fair a chance to destroy the opposing army one piece at a time. What did McClellan do? Well, I tell you this, if Robert E. Lee had been in that situation and he had received McClellan's written orders, he would have launched his army within the hour. But McClellan, he dilly-dallied around, waited a day, 24 hours, and finally launched his massive army, cautiously moving at a snail's pace to go get Robert E. Lee and his army. But because he waited, it was too late and he lost the golden opportunity, which could have been a major, if not the, turning point in the war. What an opportunity lost. You could call that contingency based on various circumstances, or we could interpret it supernaturally. Again, it depends on where one is coming from. So that led to the circumstances that eventually set things in motion for the bloodiest day in American history, the Battle of Antietam. Antietam was the bloodiest day of battle in American history, as I said, September 17, 1862, between Lee's army and McClellan's army. And I said this in an earlier episode, but I'm going to repeat it just to, just to set forth again the significance of, of carnage at the Battle of Antietam. On that day, 6,500 to 7,000 men were killed in action. According to one estimate, approximately one man died every five or six seconds of the battle. The number of casualties in one day at the Battle of Antietam was nearly four times the number of casualties on D-Day, June 6, 1944. Twice as many people were killed and mortally wounded than were killed by the terrorist attacks on the United States on September 11, 2001. Indeed, the number of battle deaths in one day at Antietam exceeded the total battle deaths in all the other wars the United States fought in the 19th century. 
the War of 1812, the Mexican-American War, the Spanish-American War, and the Indian Wars. So this was a horrific day. And it, it was a Union victory. A marginal victory, but it was a victory. Interestingly, after the victory, McClellan dilly-dallied around and allowed Lee to escape. Lincoln even visited McClellan there and said, get your troops moved. If you don't, you're going to be a ruined man. McClellan didn't really listen to the president. And eventually he did lose his command. So the consequences of Antietam, number one, England backed off from, the interv- from intervening in the war and giving the Confederacy the diplomatic recognition that it so very much wanted. Two, the battle impacted the November elections. And three, the most important consequence of Antietam was that Lincoln now had the victory he needed to issue his Emancipation Proclamation. So he went before his cabinet. It's most interesting, the story as reported by those who were there, such as Simon Chase. He recorded the highlights of the discussion in his diary. He wrote, I have thought a great deal, or he he wrote, and he's quoting Lincoln here, what he remembered Lincoln saying, I thought a great deal about the relation of this war to slavery, Lincoln told his cabinet. After mentioning the original draft of the Emancipation Proclamation, he proposed back in July. The president said, Ever since then, my mind has been much occupied with this subject, and I have thought all along that the time for acting on it might very probably come. I think the time has now come. I wish it were a better time. I wish that it were in a better condition. The action of the army against the rebels has not been quite what I should have best liked. But they have been driven driven out of Maryland, and Pennsylvania is no longer in danger of invasion. In the most solemn tone, Lincoln shared what was in his heart. When the rebel army was at Frederick, I determined as soon as it should be driven out of Maryland to issue a proclamation of emancipation such as I thought most likely to be useful. I said nothing to anyone, but I made the promise to myself and, according to those around him hesitating a little, to my maker. The rebel army is now driven out and I am going to fulfill that promise. Gideon Wells recorded in his diary that in the course of the long and earnest discussion, the president used the terms vow and covenant to describe his promise to himself and God. The victory at Antietam was thus an indication of the divine will, the president said. It was his duty to move forward in the cause of emancipation. His mind was made up, and he said God had decided this question in favor of the slaves. And of course, that was the release of the first draft of the Emancipation, and he would sign it the first day of that next year. And he signed it into history. But with regard to Antietam, interpreting this point in the war from Ellen White's August 1861 forecast, God had ordained the much-needed victory at Antietam. Its timing was delicate and precise, a moment in the war when so much hung in the balance. If the Union had lost this momentous battle, England would have intervened and given the Confederacy diplomatic recognition, the Union cause would have been defeated in the November elections, and most importantly, the character of the war and the future of slavery in the South would have remained unchanged without Lincoln's preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. But God, in His wisdom, as Ellen White put it, saw fit to give this victory to the Union in September 1862. It was the beginning of the end, a long and bloody end. So we can describe, as many historians do, Antietam, the Battle of Antietam, was the first major turning point in the war. Very important victory. Although a marginal victory in terms of it, of what it accomplished, it was very significant. So back to the beginning of 62, you see this series of victories in the winter-spring. Then you have the defeat of the Seven Days Battle, Second Manassas. Then you have 
Another up pattern of victory with Antietam, very significant. But guess what? Right after that, a major defeat for the Union. Up and down, up and down. That's the pattern here. The Battle of Fredericksburg on December 13. A rare battle fought during the cold. He usually wait, waited till better weather. The, the summer, spring, fall. But this one was fought in the winter. And it was a cold day. Fredericksburg was a disaster. They, uh, Lee had his, roots and, uh, his troops entrenched on the ridge there at Fredericksburg, and the Union armies just went up against them, charged, foolishly charged up that ridge, and they were literally mowed down. If you, you, ha if you were on a ridge, you had the high ground in the Civil War, you had a distinctive advantage, and Lee took, took that advantage and mowed down the Union troops at Fredericksburg. It was a devastating defeat with massive loss of life. You had another battle not too long after that, the latter part of December. Stones River, Lincoln had told him, even though it's cold, you move on and you fight. And they did that. And Stones River in the, the larger Nashville, Tennessee area, this was a very marginal victory. Percentage-wise, it was, it was a, a battle of great casualty and loss of life on both sides. It was Actually, you could describe it as a draw. But it was a marginal victory, very marginal victory, but nevertheless a victory that the Union needed. In terms of the morale, uh, Lincoln, uh, he, he described himself as being in hell after, Vicks, after Fredericksburg, but Stones River was very encouraging to him. But again, throughout 62, you see this up and down, and, and it, it seems to reflect the uh, uh, progress of emancipation. It was just beginning. Emancipation would... Again, really kick in at the beginning of 1863. And Lincoln called a second fast, day of fasting and prayer for the nation in that spring in April. And the nation prayed, and they fasted. And the 1st of May, May 1 through 4, a major battle known as the Battle of Chancellorville took place, and it appeared that the Union's prayers bounced off the skies because it was a major defeat and one of Robert E. Lee's most stunning victories and, and uh, his brilliance as a, as a commander in this particular war. And it was also a, a, a great loss because uh, Stonewall Jackson, the famous Confederate general, was killed due to friendly fire from his own troops. Um, unfortunately, for the Confederates. But that was a major defeat. But then, those prayers, the answer was delayed, but evidently it took place because that summer would be some major Union victories. So you have a down at the beginning of 63, then you have an up. You have two major battles, Gettysburg and Vicksburg, both in July of 1863. Gettysburg is probably the most well-known battle of the Civil War because it was so huge. July 1 through 3, and the massive loss of life and the, 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 the uh, almost cosmic scope of, of the battlefield. Um, but it was a victory. And it stopped the, the, the rising tide of the Confederacy. But it was only a tactical victory. It was not a major crushing defeat that changed the course of the war. Uh, it was won, certainly. And, of course, it resulted in Lincoln's famous Gettysburg Address. Um, so, in terms of morale, it was, it was a significant victory in that sense. But tactically, Lee escaped. And that's a whole story in and of itself. Some of the many uh, issues that took place in the, the aftermath of this battle and Lee's great escape and the Union general's failure to really uh, take him. But what is more important is that on July 4, right after the Battle of Gettysburg ended, Grant had Vicksburg under siege. Now, Vic, Vicksburg was very important to the Confederacy because that, if you, let's put it this way, Vicksburg, as Lincoln put it, was the key. Because if you have Vicksburg, you own the Mississippi River. And for the Confederacy, the Mississippi River was everything. That's how they transported their troops and supplies. 
and that held the Confederacy together. And so Grant was obviously focusing on Vicksburg, and he held it under siege, but on July 4, he broke through. That's, of course, a story in and of itself when you study that battle, but he broke through and took Vicksburg, a stunning victory. This was a strategic victory. Gettysburg was a tactical victory. Vicksburg was a strategic victory because the Union now was able to take the entire Mississippi River and that literally cut the Confederacy in two. I mean, it, it significantly um, hindered their ability to, to maneuver and bring supplies to troops. It cut the Confederacy in two, as I said. So this was, a, as Grant put it, the beginning of the end. So Vicksburg combined with Gettysburg the two together were, were a major turning point in the war that summer. It was, it was the beginning of the end for the Confederacy. So you, in 63, you began the year with the defeat of Chancellorville, but then you had the up experience of Gettysburg and Vicksburg victories, but then things went downward again in the pattern of the Union battles. Chickamauga, on September 19 and 20, was a major defeat. And we don't have time, or I'm not going to take time to get into all the maneuvers and circumstances that led to Chickamauga. But that's in the Chattanooga area. And as a result of that, the troops all focused on Chattanooga. So you have defeat, victory, victory in 63, and then a defeat at Chickamauga. And then you have the Battle of Chattanooga another great victory for the Union. A little bit about the Battle of Chattanooga. That's my own neck of the woods. Chattanooga was extremely important to the Union objectives of winning the war. Located in southeastern Tennessee, close to North Georgia, with the Blue Ridge Mountains and Appalachian Plateau to the east and the mountains of the Cumberland Plateau to the west, the city was a convergence of roads, major railroads, and the Tennessee River. It has been called the Gateway to the Confederacy because of its major east-west railroads and its major railroads south to the important city of Atlanta, the, the, the key city for the Confederacy at that time. It was vital to the Confederacy's ability to transport troops and supplies to its armies, and thus the most important strategic point in the Confederacy, that is Chattanooga. Union control of Chattanooga, therefore, would split the Confederacy again and open the gate to strike at its heartland. And so it's interesting how this battle, there's several phases of this battle, first on Lookout Mountain, uh, but I want to focus on what happened the next day in that November of 63 at Missionary Ridge. I drive, whenever I drive to downtown Chattanooga, anybody who does, you drive on Missionary Ridge and you drive right through that major battlefield. I always find that so exciting. And every time I drive, it's all I can do to keep my eyes on the cars ahead of me because I want to look up the ridge and where Bragg's um, headquarters was. And then I want to look down at the field and see, imagine where the troops were. So it's all I can do to keep my eyes on the road. But as I find it so exciting to drive through a major battlefield like that. A number of things took place. Grant was on a little, little hill there called Orchard's Knob. And he was able to, to command the whole scenario from that point. And to summarize and get to the heart of it, the troops were, the Union troops were at the bottom. Now, this is another case where the Confederacy was embedded on a ridge, the top of Missionary Ridge, and they had a distinctive advantage. Bragg's headquarters was up there. And so you have the Union down at the bottom of the hill, all the, this army, and they're receiving the fire. I mean, the, the, the Confederacy is just loading these, these uh, shells uh, and fire up on them. And I mean, they are under intense fire and they're in these rifle pits and they're not sure what to do. And just suddenly, and historians have written much about this, so I'm just giving a very broad overview. It's like without a specific command and Grant had not told them to charge up the ridge, he had planned for Sherman and his army at the, the left flank from Grant's perspective to come up the, the edge of the ridge and roll off the Confederacy, so to speak. But Sherman had been stalled. 
And so here's the union at the bottom of the this this ridge, and they're just receiving all this fire, and there was no command to charge up because Grant knew better than to send him up that hill with the uh, Confederacy having the high ground advantage. But just suddenly, out of nowhere, one division moved, another one moved, and before long, the entire army was charging up Missionary Ridge. And the miraculous outcome is that they got to the top, there was a skirmishing and fighting and firing, and they routed the Confederates. The Confederate army that was embedded up there, they left and they ran the other way. And the Union took Missionary Ridge, thereby taking Chattanooga. It was truly remarkable. One eyewitness, Charles A. Dana, he recalled, and I'm quoting him here, the storming of the ridge by our troops was one of the greatest miracles in military history. No man who climbs the ascent by any of the roads that wind along its front can believe that 18,000 men were moved up its broken and crumbling face unless it was his fortune to witness the deed. He then exclaimed, it seems as awful as a visible interposition of God. Even General Grant was amazed that the advancing troops survived such a fearful volley of grape and canister, he said. He noted that their progress, quote, was steadily onward until the summit was in their possession and the casualties were remarkably few for the fire encountered, end quote. Why was it that or why was it not a slaughter like Pickett's charge at Gettysburg or the Union charges at Fredericksburg? The general struggled to find an adequate answer. I can account for this only on the theory that the enemy surprised that the audacity of such a charge caused confusion and purposeless aiming of their pieces, end quote. In other words, it was difficult to account for such a sudden reversal in military fortunes fortunes, from a position of being trapped in the rifle pits to charging up the steepest part of the ridge under heavy fire to full possession of the summit all within an hour's time? There are other natural reasons that have been attributed to the miracle on Missionary Ridge, as it's called, such as the problematic Confederate position on the ridge, the natural ebb and flow of battle, and so forth. And certainly this kind of analysis of the battle at Missionary Ridge, as well as in all of the battles of the Civil War, for that matter, must be done with as much objectivity as possible. But Dana's statement that the charge to the summit was a, quote, visible interposition of God, end quote, deserves attention in light of Ellen White's sweeping forecast of the Union battles. If, as she said, God has this nation in his own hand and would oversee the wins and losses of the Union battles, then from that perspective, God was involved in the decisive battle on Missionary Ridge that gave Chattanooga permanently into Union hands. Just how God involved himself in the battle, we don't know. Since Mrs. White and no one else had a specific revelation about this battle, whatever moved those divisions at the rifle pits to begin ascending the steep slopes, whether it was a calculated order by the officers, as some, some uh, eyewitnesses put it, or the impulse of the soldiers, or a combination of both, or some supernatural influence, it was an act of divine providence, as many believers of that era would say. Is it possible that, similar to the Union route at First Bull Run, there was a supernatural presence in that it, that intensified the panic in parts of the Confederate line on Missionary Ridge, and also influenced the Union Army's difficult and dangerous charge up to the ridge? The answer, of course, depends on one's worldview and knowledge of the battle itself. Admittedly, there are several solid natural reasons why Bragg's line on that ridge was not as strong as it should have been and made it vulnerable to enemy penetration. Nevertheless, Bragg's army should have made a better stand with their advantage of high ground. In the end, because of the stunning climactic victory in the battles for Chattanooga, was against so many odds, it is well deserving of the title Miracle on Missionary Ridge. Chattanooga was a significant strategic victory that set the Union on a final course for ultimate victory over the Confederacy. Without question, it was a major turning point in the war. So 1863, the summer battles and the late fall battles of Missionary Ridge, Chattanooga, the Union victories, 
these were major turning points in the war. Now that the Union owned Chattanooga, that set things in motion for Sherman to launch his march towards Atlanta. So as the year concluded, plans were of course made for the next year to hopefully wrap things up, which to many chagrin would not happen. But the president focused on three generals who had shown themselves to be great fighters at this point in the war. Ulysses S. Grant, William T. Sherman, and Philip Sheridan. Grant was made general-in-chief of the Northern Armies in the spring of 1864. And so two major offenses were planned. Grant would launch an overland campaign in Virginia to take Richmond, the Confederate capital, and Sherman would launch from it from Chattanooga a march towards Atlanta to take Atlanta, and that would be a major downfall for the Confederacy if he took Atlanta. So those were the two main focus at the beginning of 64. And so let's look at the pattern of the battles. First, Grant's overland campaign. The first major battle on May 5 through 7, it was the wilderness, called the Wilderness Campaign. Very bloody battle. Terrible things, awful things happened during this battle in terms of suffering of soldiers and so forth. But it was a draw, basically a tie. Neither one could claim a decisive victory, except both experienced massive carnage to their armies. Lee, this is between Lee and Grant. Then Spotsylvania, another extremely violent, bloody battle that converged on one specific location. It was a draw again. That's May 8 through 20. So there's no major uh, progress here. Uh, emancipation had been making progress, but still was somewhat stalled. And so it's interesting as you see this here with these battles. So the wilderness was a draw. Spotsylvania was a draw. Coal Harbor, a major uh, offensive on June 1 through 3, ended in bloody defeat for the Union. So you had some down times here, down battles, losses. And then Grant eventually made it, and I'm not covering all the major uh, battles of the uh, Overland Campaign, but let's just jump to Petersburg on June 15 through 18. That was a draw. Grant was not able to take Petersburg. Petersburg, you take Petersburg, then that opened the door to go right into Richmond. So Petersburg was like the, the line of defense for the Confederacy. But Grant didn't take it at this point, and so he was stalled and held Petersburg under siege, and that siege would last all summer long. So then we shift to Sherman in his march towards Atlanta. A, a series of battles took place as he, he went back and forth with the Confederate General Johnston. It was very interesting as you study that. We won't take time to get into all of the details, but you can see clearly the up and down pattern within that campaign itself as you look at the details. A major defeat was Kennesaw Mountain on June 27. They went back and forth and and even the Confederacy changed generals. Uh, it, was, it was a tough time for the Union. And then you have a defeat at the Crater in the Petersburg area as well, the Battle of the Crater. So by the midsummer, Sherman had made it to Atlanta, but he was stalled. So he held Atlanta under siege. He was stalled at Atlanta. Grant was stalled at Petersburg. There was no progress. So the summer was a, a time of discouragement and low morale for the Union. There was no, no progress. And this was an election year. And so that meant Lincoln was running for re-election. And guess who his opponent was? George McClellan, who he had fired earlier in the war. McClellan was the Democratic candidate, and of course Lincoln was the Republican candidate. And at that point, McClellan's campaign was gaining a lot of steam. He was highly critical of Lincoln. Things were not looking good in the war. All this, the bloody 
Overland campaign with Grant and no real progress, stalled at Petersburg, and the same with Sherman. And Lincoln, in his private correspondence, he had all but given up. He believed he this was going to be a stunning loss. He was going to lose the presidency, and McClellan would win. McClellan had an entire different philosophy. McClellan would have made peace with the Confederacy and allowed them to keep their, their slaves um, or the, keep the institution of slavery, and it would have been a whole different administrative approach. Uh, it, so if, if Lincoln had lost, it would have been devastating, but it didn't look like things were going to work. Uh, there's just, victory did not seem to be in sight. Lincoln called another day of fast and prayer, his third call to the nation for prayer and fasting. And the nation prayed, and they fasted, and things didn't look good. Remain quiet, nothing was happening, no movement, until September 2. Lincoln got the best news he probably ever heard in the Civil War. Sherman took Atlanta. He broke through the line, went into Atlanta, and took it. And uh, he shared that with Lincoln and the news. It hit the North. It was like a shot of adrenaline. The newspapers lit up. Everyone was overwhelmed with joy. It was a stunning victory. This broke through, and a series of other events took place. That When the election happened, Lincoln won by a landslide, and he was able to go forward with this plan, which was eventually to eliminate slavery from the nation. This is the stuff of history. Sherman launched his march from Atlanta and went, went uh, right through the heart of the Confederacy, cut it through again, took Savannah, delivered that to Lincoln as a, as a Christmas gift. It was, it was amazing what had happened. Then you have several other victories, the victory of Nashville, a number of other Union victories. I'm not mentioning all of them, but again, you see this pattern. Uh, at the beginning of 64, the first half defeat, pretty much, and then the latter half, you have victory. And Lincoln had been already working towards the 13th Amendment. And so during that December and January, the 13th Amendment was a big focus, and it was finally passed by Congress on January 31, in 1865, the 13th Amendment to eradicate slavery from the Constitution and end slavery. And of course, it would be ratified a year later on December 6, 1865. But this was a significant step forward, passing it in January 31, 65. And after that, for that winter and spring, it was victory after victory. Sherman's March. January, March to the Carolinas, victory, just to slice the Confederacy into once again, destroyed all of their resources. Um, Sheridan was in the Shenandoah Valley, I should add, in, in the, also in the fall of 64, and, and just destroyed what is called the breadbasket of the Confederacy. There were no resources and foods for the Confederate Army. And then Grant, in April 2, he finally broke through Petersburg and then went on to Richmond and took Richmond. It fell the next day, April 3, another stunning victory. And then, of course, all of this led up to, with other battles, uh, victories, ultimately up to Appomattox Court on April 9, which is when Robert E. Lee officially surrendered his army to the Union. And after a few more battles after that, the Civil War was officially over. And so it's remarkable how, in my thinking, how the patterns of the Union battles, their losses and their victories, it, it fit with an amazing way what Ellen White had said. I almost want to say precision, but let's just say that it was very, very close to what she had said. There's no other way to describe it that as her forecast was fulfilled. Again, here's what she said. Testimonies, Volume 1, page 267. Then it was explained that God had this nation in his own hand and would not suffer victories to be gained faster 
than he ordained, and would permit no more losses to the northern men than in his wisdom he saw fit to punish them for their sins. Well, you look back at the loss, the carnage, the delays, and the winds. You can see that as punishment. But then as emancipation progressed, God heard the prayers on the days of, of fasting, and you have victory. And when, when emancipation became a reality, and when it was so close, that's when you have uninterrupted victories in the Union Army. So all of that really fit this statement with an amazing fulfillment from the perspective of a supernatural interpretation, the one that I'm giving, of course. So I'm going to summarize it and end it this way. God has this nation in his own hand today. And if he has this nation in his own hand, and we could add all the other nations of the world from a Christian perspective, then it's reasonable to believe that he has your life and my life in his own hand. And that is good news in the midst of, I think we would have to describe it as the crises that we're experiencing in the world today and in America today. So that's good news. So that's a forecast of the battles. I'm going to continue this series in the Civil War. There's so much I was sharing with someone the other day, I could go for like three years on this thing. But of course, we want to just go a few more episodes, perhaps to the late latter part of this year, and then, uh, then I will shift to another subject. But for now, I'm going to continue on this, and I've got several episodes ahead. I'm going to deal with a, an interesting Ellen White statement Ellen White made about the Union commanders and spiritualists. I'm also going to talk about some of the issues with England. Critics say that uh, she made a failed prophecy about England declaring war. Well, I've already alluded to that in this episode. I'll cover some things like that. And then I will eventually get into Ellen White and Abraham Lincoln. How Lincoln came to the same position about the war in his inaugural address at the end of the war that Ellen White had at the beginning of the war. So some interesting things are ahead. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. I hope this has been interesting and engaging and fortifying for you. So until next time.